0: If how you feel is dependent on somebody else, then you have no power over your own feelings, which therefore means that you are at the mercy. So you can be as nice as you like. You could do whatever you like, but if that person still chooses to think that you're not good enough, is that how you want to be? Do you want your feelings of self-worth to be defined by other people? Or do you want
1: to define them for yourself? Are your feelings of self-worth and self-esteem dependent on what other people think? Do you tie yourself in knots trying to please other people, only to find that it often makes absolutely no difference? And do you often find yourself triggered and irritated by other people because of past experiences, which might not have anything to do with what's actually going on in front of your nose? In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Karen Forshaw, GP, trainer, appraiser and mentor and Chrissy Mowbray, physiotherapist, psychotherapist and hypnotherapist to talk about those thoughts, prejudices and assumptions which keep us stuck, angry and miserable in life and at work. Our actions and feelings are shaped by our thoughts but so often our thoughts are shaped by our own self-doubt and fear and are based on past experiences, rather than an impartial analysis of the situation in front of us. We discuss how to become more aware of these unhelpful thoughts, beliefs and assumptions and how they're shaping how we behave. We think about how approaching a situation as if we've never met it or the person before can be transformational in how we react when things get tricky. And we discuss simple techniques which can help you care less about what people think of you and care more about what you believe about yourself. This episode was a real eye-opener for me and contains some fundamental principles which I don't think we talk about enough and which, if we were able to remember and put into practice, will change the way we interact with our colleagues, families, clients and patients. You can find links to many more resources from Karen and Chrissy's Resilient Practice website in the show notes, and you can also sign up to get my handout all about how to change these stories that you tell yourself. So listen to this episode if you want to find out why people-pleasing will never make difficult situations go away in the long run, the difference between compassion and empathy and why this matters, and how approaching every situation with a beginner's mind might just be the key to fixing those tricky relationships. To You Are Not a Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris. I'm a GP now working as a coach, speaker, and specialist in teaching resilience. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been described as frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water. We hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to feeling stressed and exhausted let's face it frogs generally only have two options stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave but you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in it is possible to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in difficult circumstances and if you're happier at work you'll simply do a better job In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60 minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. It's great to welcome today onto the podcast Dr. Karen Forshaw and Chrissy Mowbray. So, welcome, both of you. Hello there. So, Karen is a GP trainer. She's an appraiser and an LMC mentor. And Chrissy is a physiotherapist, a psychotherapist, and a hypnotherapist. So, wow, all those different qualifications, Chrissy. Yeah, I wear a few hats in clinic. And you're both that are practicing clinically right now at the moment as well, aren't you? So can I just start off with, and in the, in a minute we're going to get on to be talking all about control and compassion fatigue and all these sorts of really interesting stuff that you guys talk about. But but what have you been seeing in practice right now with with healthcare professionals and and, and other people that you're working with?
0: I think we're almost getting to the point where people are at break point. Really, there is a unfortunately, there's been a real downturn in the kind of well. Maybe patients' perspective. So I think people are really frustrated. They want things to go back to the way they were. I think we're trying to embrace the changes that came about because of COVID and perhaps bring forward some of them, such as telephone consultations and remote follow-up. And and patients are finding that difficult because it is a big change in what they're expecting. I think they're cross because you know it's going to take years for the NHS to recover from in the hospital from the kind of list that they've got people waiting. And I think that they're taking that frustration out on the frontline workers that they see in general practice, really. So, you know, it's just some days it feels like there are too many things to do. And I don't think I'm alone feeling that really.
2: Yeah, it's not to everybody's confidence, I think, basically. I think while things are going well and we feel like we're on top of things, we can get to a point where we can practice confidently. We feel we're at the top of our game, but it does not take an awful lot. When I say it doesn't take an awful lot, you know, sort of, Things that are happening at, happening at home or, you know, if you're unwell or or a spell away from work can knock your confidence. And I think a pandemic and a change in practice and a change in what people expect from the front line. It makes people take it out on the front line. A complaint about the way that you're delivering your service, even if it's out of your hands, is going to chip away at your self-worth. And I think that all of us have issues around self-worth. And what I'm seeing is that manifesting in in people's ability to practice confidently and, and also just in mood and, and, you know, enjoying your job, enjoying your life. And, and, and basically it, it comes
1: across that people are just generally less happy. Now I know you both sort of specialize in resilience training and you've, you've written a book and it's something you're really interested in. Do you think that there's other stuff going on apart from just this overwhelming workload and dealing with criticism from the public?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that everybody has their own stuff, don't they? We're still st- we're still trying to come up with a better word for it than stuff. But you know, as Chrissy mentioned before, people have things going on in their own lives, and um, some people may have you know experienced bereavement themselves. We we are human beings, and we're experiencing all sorts of different things happening on all the different fronts in those different kind of roles that we have, and and underlying all of that. We have the kind of conditioning that happens as you're growing up, which is about whether you are it's OK to talk about mental health, whether it's OK to talk about stress and anxiety and things like that, or whether they're the things that you should push inside and keep away because, because we shouldn't, you know, have to, we should never experience them. So, so those kinds of things basically form us, don't they, as a person? And we end up with core beliefs. And a lot of us actually have quite negative core beliefs, I think we boiled it down, haven't we, to not feeling worthy or feeling broken in some way. And actually, if you have negative core beliefs rippling along underneath, they influence how you think, they influence how you feel, and that influences what you do and what you say. And all of those things then go around in the cognitive behavioral cycle, thoughts, feelings and actions, all being driven by core beliefs so if we don't reframe our core beliefs or at least acknowledge that they're there then they are going to influence us and that influence they will influence us in quite unexpected ways
1: i love this this idea of your core beliefs i call it the story in your head and all the training that i do and it's the one thing that just just cuts to the heart of things because it it's a bit of a revelation once you've sort of seen it you can't unsee it can you but all our stress all our anxiety and worry is caused by our thinking it's caused by the stories we're telling ourselves not by what other people are doing to us it 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 absolutely it can't be but it's really hard to get that because like that person is so flipping annoying they are causing my stress it's not it's not me I think as healthcare professionals we we find it very hard to accept that it's ourselves and our own thinking causing this, because there are so many other things that are contributing to that. But but when you are blaming other people all the time and, and saying it's because of their actions and it's because of this that I'm feeling like this, it's a pretty powerless place to be, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's when you are completely externalizing your
0: locus of control, which is a term that we talk about. So basically if you have an external locus of control. It's everybody else's fault. There's always a reason for why something's happened. There's a reason for why you're feeling the way that you're feeling it. And as you say, that is completely disempowering because it means you have no control over anything. Whereas if you actually try to develop an internal locus of control, which basically then means that you accept responsibility for everything that you do, then you have all the power because it doesn't matter what other people do because you recognize that it's your response's that are the key thing, and you are 100% in charge of your own responses. Now, I teach this stuff to patients, and they don't like it very much. (laughs) So it's because I say to them, well, you're anxious. Are you anxious? Or actually, is that just what you've been choosing to think and feel and do up to this point in time? And, and, And some people are like, oh, my goodness, I can't. Oh, my goodness. And then they come back later, and they go, oh, my goodness. And other people don't like it, and they're not ready for that. But actually, yes, if we can all move towards an internal locus of control, that is a very, very, very empowering place to be.
2: I would say, conversely, the challenge to that is that we all have an inherent need for approval that comes from childhood and that follows us into adulthood. Unless we make it conscious and we're aware of where it's kicking in, then it it externalises our locus of control because we're looking for external validation and, and approval. And that comes from the need to survive as children, because without being approved of, we're dead, aren't we? Because we're abandoned. That's the opposite of approval. And so what tends to happen is we never really shed that that survival instinct and we look for it all the time. Even, you know, when you're the most resilient you can possibly be and you feel like your focus of, of control is entirely internal and that you've got all of your responses conscious and under control, you will still find yourself seeking approval occasionally
1: and that people pleasing thing it's like you said it, it is an existential thing isn't it because you know when our when we were living in caves you know forget being kids but as an adult if you pissed everybody else off they Absolutely. would check you You're out, the out in the cold yeah, yeah you'd be <laughs> eaten by buried dive exposure or both so you know when people say oh just stop people pleasing oh she's such a people pleaser <laughs> it's like yeah because I want to survive in this in this world but it really doesn't Service very well, does it? Not at all, actually. No, <laughs> I think uh, people actually
2: describe themselves as people pleasers as well. And as soon as you you own up to that and you you're wearing it on your on your clothing, and people know who to ask, then because you have designed yourself as this kind of I'm the lovely doctor and I will. And then the lovely doctor that the receptionist will then actually ask to do the extra patients at five o'clock because the one who should be doing it is a little bit less. Pleasing, and it makes it easier for people to ask you. So, if you are a people pleaser, you'll be the one that people ask. And it all comes down to that need for approval and the need to be liked as well. And I actually think that on the front line as healthcare professionals, we are a self selected group of people who have a need to be liked as well because we were probably conditioned that we were caring as children. It was approved of that we, you know, that we cared for others and that we wanted to go into a, a caring profession. Um, and that that is within us, and it's very very difficult to see ourselves in in a different way, and that we need to we need to for our own our own survival wise resilience
1: is at stake. Mm. But can I just ask you, play devil's advocate here? I mean, it is quite a good thing to want to be like, because that means what you're doing is trying to do things for other people that they, they that they're going to like. So it means that you're being a nice person and you're not a psychopath, right? <laughs> but if you, if how you
0: feel is dependent on somebody else, then you have no power over your own feelings, which therefore means that you are at the mercy. So, so you can be as nice as you like. And we all have seen this with patients, haven't we? In fact, it's the patients that you often feel like you've gone out of your way for are the ones that tend to complain. So, so you could do whatever you like, but if that person still chooses to think that you're not good enough, Is that how you want to be? Do you want your your kind of feelings of self worth to be defined by other people, or do you want to define them for yourselves? Do you want to say, you know what? I know that I did the right thing in that consultation. I, you know, used my skills and I shared knowledge and I was kind. Um, I was compassionate to that patient. Full stop. And that's why when you get a complaint, if you know that you did the right thing. You're not bothered by it at all. It's only if you actually think that you probably didn't do what you should have done, that you feel bothered by complaints. In my experience, mm. having had complaints. <laughs>
1: yes, haven't we, all, up. <laughs> haven't we all? Haven't we all? I think the thing that bugs me about that is that, yeah, you get a complaint. Oh, you look back through the notes and think, right, what did I do? What did I do? Oh, oh thank God I did the right thing. Oh, I talk to someone else yeah. and they go, yeah, I probably did. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you don't do the right thing, right? And you just get it wrong. For absolutely no reason at all, because you just got distracted or you were tired or we all make mistakes. I remember that the practice pharmacist coming up to me saying, Rachel, did you mean to prescribe 280 diazepam? I was like, oh, no, I did not. <laughs> Let's just change that prescription, shall we? You know, literally finger slipped when typing it. Yeah, you know, so we all do things. And so we need to be OK when we've made a mistake and get complained, complaint. And it is our fault
2: there's a sort of a bit of a british thing about being sorry i have patients who apologize just for getting on the couch or you know or for bumping people who apologize when they bump into you and we talk about saying sorry when we're actually responsible for something that's gone wrong so when you've made a mistake with with a patient and they complain i think if you have made a mistake it's perfectly okay to say that was actually my fault and i am sorry but i think we are also in danger of saying sorry when as Karen said a consultation's gone well and we've done everything that we could possibly do and we know that that patient is disgruntled whatever we would have done it would have been the same outcome and there are other ways to handle that we can say you know it's unfortunate that you feel that that you haven't had a good service without saying i'm sorry and taking responsibility that for something that that is not your fault or that that didn't particularly go wrong by the way that you see it so I think I think it's all about being conscious with your responses and, and asking yourself when you're saying sorry or when you're thinking, when you're being accountable for something. Do I really mean that? Am I accountable? Am I sorry for what happened there? Or do I feel it was a good service, but it's unfortunate that they don't. And can we explore how they would have, you know, how they would have liked it to have gone?
1: I guess, Chrissy, hearing you say it's unfortunate that it immediately makes me think, actually, if someone said to me, oh, it's unfortunate that you feel that way, I'd get a bit annoyed because I think "Mm, that this is just being fobbed off. But is it ever okay to say, I am really sorry that you feel that way? Because you can be genuinely sorry that someone feels that without being sorry about what actually happened. Does that make sense?
2: I think you can, yeah. But I think we use
0: the phrase, I'm sorry, without thinking about it. So basically... When you say, I'm sorry, but it basically means you're not sorry at all. Doesn't <laughs> sorry, it? not yeah. sorry, yeah. So, so, actually, let's think, maybe try and think of a different way of doing that. The last time I got a complaint, I actually said, Thank you for your letter. And and that made me feel quite good. And because I thought, Actually, I am really, because this lady's pointing out something that is highlighting that I'm a bit unorganized, actually, and probably ought to sort that out, really. So, I started it off with saying, Thank you for your letter. And actually, I think that really sets the tone. I wasn't saying sorry, and I didn't particularly say sorry in the letter. I just, but but, but I started it off. And as because you said that's about your intention. It's about the intention that you have when you say it. And saying, I'm sorry, but, means you're not sorry. So, mm-hmm. so think about, think about what you're saying. Think about what your words really mean. And think about the intention behind them. And also, there's lots to think about. Also think about, why is this triggering you? What core belief, what negative core belief is it poking at? Because that's the universe saying, here's another opportunity for you to grow, for you to actually change the way that you think about yourself internally. So it's win-win, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a really interesting observation because <clears throat> my observation is when the media are criticizing doctors and they're saying, you're not working, you're not seeing patients face-to-face. And, you know, looking at it, I'm thinking, why are people reacting so badly cuz we know it's not true. I mean it's obviously not true and I told this story so many times, you know, one of my colleagues, you know, who's saying Gandhi literally just finished examining a patient. Patient is putting on his jacket, patient turns around and says, "So when are you going to open, doctor?" It's like
0: it's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Last it? bunkers. Yeah, we had exactly this on a course that we ran recently, didn't we? And basically the first thing that somebody said was, oh, it's really awful in the press. I just laughed and I said, but we know that's not true, don't we? Yeah. And actually, we know that. So why are we bothered about what other people think? Yeah. About- and it's
1: right. So I think what you're saying, exactly. Like if someone came up to me in the middle of the street and said to me, or you, you're rubbish at what you do. You're a rubbish coach or you're a rubbish trainer. And they'd never met me before they hadn't seen it. I'd just laugh because I think... So, yeah, you have no idea. If someone who'd yeah. been on one of my courses came up and said, "You're really not very good," that I'd, I'd really take that to heart. So,
0: yeah, yeah. well, it's the same with the general
1: public. You know, if they if they they're coming up to you and saying, "Actually, you're 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 useless," and you're not seeing patients face to face, we are. And so yeah. the problem is what it's doing. The reason why we're getting upset about it is because it's hitting that raw nerve. It's going, maybe I am not doing enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe we 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 can't provide the service we can and this is back to your locus of control because I think health practitioners take on too much responsibility so we're feeling dreadfully responsible for the health of the nation but that that's completely out of our control and what happens out of control but it's, it hits a raw nerve when they criticize us because we know we couldn't do anything about it but we get very defensive because deep down we're telling ourselves we should have done yeah is that right I think so, but again, that's that's
0: and it's triggering core beliefs, isn't it? If you think about us as doctors, we are fixers, aren't we? We like to think that we can make people better, and actually, really, maybe we ought to move away from that. This is pushing us towards our compassion versus empathy argument. So, actually, should we be taking responsibility for how our patients feel? Should we be absorbing their pain and their anxiety all of the time? And and we agree, no, we absolutely shouldn't be because that's really bad for us when we think about horrible things happening or imagine how somebody tried to imagine how somebody felt when that happened in fact we will have a release of stress hormones in our own bodies because remembered events trigger a same same kind of flight fight response in us and if you're doing that 10 20 times a day when you're talking to people who are upset or anxious then you will at the end of that be drained and You will have high levels of cortisol and high levels of adrenaline in your system, which is not a good way to work. And it's really unhealthy for us. So actually stepping back from it a little bit and being compassionate. So the definition of compassion is feeling sympathy for somebody and wanting to do something about it. So we don't advocate just being sorry for people, obviously, but actually recognising the impact of a problem on a patient, wanting to, to genuinely do something about it to help them. Is is the definition of compassion, and that is absolutely what we are advocating for all clinicians, really, and particularly young people coming through now, because it is overwhelming, isn't it? Because we know that the pandemic has affected the mental health of the population, and we can't we can't absorb all of that ourselves. And actually, it's bad for patients too, because if we're absorbing all of that from them, they get the idea that they can come and just offload on the doctor and leave it all there, and then they go away feeling better. Again, they need to take responsibility for what's going on in their life. So they? they need to take responsibility for their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, just like we do. And actually, then being compassionate rather than over empathizing with people allows you to help them do that. So you can bring your expert knowledge, they bring their expert knowledge of themselves. So they tell you what they can and can't do, and you give them a range of solutions, and together you can come up with a plan that fits them.
1: I was listening to Uh, episode three of the podcast we recorded almost yeah it was two years ago with Agnes Otzelberger and she was saying that when they put people in an MRI scanner and show and and played them sounds of, of people suffering their empathy centers lit up and they and also their pain centers lit up so they actually felt that in the same way as you feel physical pain is is that right I get it top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's true. So, so basically, yes, this is, that's absolutely what starts to happen. But actually, what we want people to think about is, do we know what that person's really thinking or feeling? of course we don't because we're not them and we have a different worldview yeah because we were brought up in a different way we were conditioned in a different way we had different life experiences so really when we are empathizing with people we are actually probably trying to guess how they feel yeah or we're basing it on our own experience yeah so then we start reliving a lived experience and this happened to me in clinic not that long ago my mum died in May and um a patient came and she'd lost her husband and she was talking about it and I got really upset and I was like oh I can't believe I'm doing this because this is not me and and, and actually it was me it was my kind of grief about when mom came out and and actually the patient kind of looked at me she was a bit shocked and, and I could I almost could feel her thinking why are you upset this isn't about you and I was like I'm so sorry this is because of my mom, and this is nothing to do with you know I'm butting into your consultation here so just give me a minute and then we'll come yeah. back to you. So it does go both ways really. It really does.
1: Mm. It's it's very interesting that about yeah things that butt up I, you know if any of my children ever have friendship issues for example I talk to them and I, I feel absolutely agonized and in pain after because I know how I'd feel and then often it's all resolved for them within half an hour and I'm like oh almost like in the physical thing because uh, of how I would feel if it was if it was me as a woman of this age not as a you know 10 year old child <laughs> or whatever so it's absolutely it's, it's really tricky I mean Chrissy how do you advise your clients to turn from this empathy bit into the compassion bit because that's a bit that I don't quite understand is how you get from this constant feeling of empathy because that's what we do as human beings and and you don't want to have a complete lack of empathy do you because that's psychopath presumably if you have a lack yeah, of empathy no
2: I, I mean yeah I think I think the first thing to do is to make it conscious to be aware I'm being empathic I'm starting to feel and I have a kind of an almost uh an inner voice that says okay you you need to come back because you're feeling this as opposed to observing it and I and it's not that I don't want to feel it it's just I want to be aware if my my emotions are getting involved that really muddies the waters because in actual fact we project then our needs onto our patients so I'm assuming what they need I'm 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 thinking well and and actually to back from my own experience to stand back when I realize I'm being over empathic and I'm I'm kind of feeling for the patient to say I can see this is distressing for you what do you need because if I ask them what they need quite often they will hugely surprise me and say well I need you to speak to the GP and find out if that diagnosis is correct I need you to ask if you know what actually was on the x-ray report or I need you I just need you to to do some physical treatment or and I I was thinking you needed a hug because you're really upset, you know. So, so for me, it's about standing back and being aware that I'm a human being. I am empathic because I'm supposed to work as a professional. So, and it is a self-selecting um, profession or group of professionals, and um, that's perfectly okay. But to observe it and and to ask myself. Is empathy appropriate in this situation? Or is it going to cloud the issue? And should I actually stand back from my own emotions and my own feelings about the situation and ask the person who described to me how they feel and what they need and what I can do for them um, and in what way I can be of service to them? So it's not really about saying empathy is bad, it's better to be compassionate. It's about looking at the argument and saying, in this situation, where do I sit? And also about being really good at, at switching on the observer part of the psyche—the part that does the that can tell me that you're upset, but doesn't do the feeling upset. So the part that's able to observe everything, that's able to to notice my emotions without collapsing into them. And if I'm really observ- uh, if I'm a real, really good observer of my own consultation, then I can notice when that empathy kicks in, and I can decide whether it's appropriate to let it run or not. And as Karen said, sometimes you can't help it. You're already there. You're already welling up and you're already thinking, well I'm and that's okay. That makes you an empathic doctor. But I think from the in terms of being able to decide, it's about observing it first and then choosing to decide whether to let it run or not. Or, or and then you can go to the question, you know, I can see your distress, what do you need? And then, and then you can act on that.
1: And so do you have any particular tips or techniques that would work? I, I know you've talked about beginner's mind and shadow work. What, what's all that about?
0: So our shadow are all those parts of ourselves that we dislike, that have been disapproved of, that have been kind of, you know, trained out of us as we've grown up. So the things that, that we felt we needed to hide to avoid being abandoned as children. and when we come into contact with people so actually shadow work is a bit different the, the compassion versus empathy I would say is the tools are what has talked about and also maybe even some visualization exercises to think about protecting yourself from absorbing things from people when they come in and making sure after you've seen a patient that you literally do do Roger Neva's housekeeping so um that's not just about getting up and having a but it's about you know really getting rid of the feelings that were developed or that came up in you when you had that first consultation so visualize washing your hands and visualize all those feelings disappearing because because you need to come to the next person fresh shadow work is more when people annoy you actually Um, so when somebody does something and you're annoyed or it triggers you in some way it makes you cross or it makes you upset it's because they are reflecting back at you something that you really dislike about yourself, something that is in your shadow. But actually, if we can acknowledge that we've all got all of those parts, we can all be cruel, we can all be unkind, we can all be disrespectful, we can, you know, in the right circumstances, we can all do certain things. So if we can acknowledge that there is a part of us that is potentially capable of that, then we stop judging ourselves. And when we stop judging ourselves, then we'll stop judging the people around us. And actually then what they do doesn't affect us because what we've done is we've moved to a more internal locus of control and we've gone, ah, that person did something that annoyed me. Why was that? What is it about me that is making me respond in that way? Okay, I need to do some inner work here. And, and it becomes not about that person. It becomes about you. And when it becomes about you, you have all the power because you can reframe your core beliefs. You can think about, you can reframe your thoughts. You can alter your body chemistry by doing positive things and you can look at the things that you do, can't you, and actually act in a more positive way so that you're driving positive behavioural cycles rather than ones. Mm.
1: That's really interesting. Would you say then that the things that annoy you most are generally the things that, that you dislike about yourself most? That you have pushed down as far as you possibly can, yes.
0: So the more it annoys you, the more you've pushed it down, the more you... Can almost not face that you may have the capacity for that characteristic.
1: Okay, that's interesting. So I always thought it was the things that annoy you most—the things you're definitely not like. But actually, you're saying no, maybe it's the thing you really. uncrumple oh, That's yeah, but they're not um, large parts. They're tiny, tiny parts of you, aren't they? And that's why it annoys you
0: so much because you aren't an unkind person. You aren't cruel, but in certain circumstances, we can, we all have the capacity mm-hmm. to be all of those things, really. And don't think about behaviours, think about characteristics. On a course of hours, actually, people, people don't like this, actually, because it's challenging, isn't it, to think that there are dark parts of yourself. Somebody said, so if I find child abuse abhorrent, does that mean that part of me has the capacity to be a child abuser? But actually, it's about the characteristics and the traits that somebody who does that kind of thing has, and that is, Cruelty manipulation, isn't it? And so it's the traits that underlie a behaviour, not necessarily the Mm
1: behaviour. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And so that's really interesting. So you notice why they're irritating you, and think about okay, what's that hitting in me that's causing it? Yeah, and then you can then you can change that because it's about you rather than about then because so. so And then then it doesn't bother you anymore. Yeah, yeah. So many people are so focused on trying to change other people, and and that's. That's so stressful, well, that's isn't, it? isn't it? it's impossible, isn't it? I can't do it. anything about yeah. it. Well, unless you're married to them. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lucky because my husband doesn't really listen to every episode, so he won't hear this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Perfect>. <laughs> mm. So I was going to talk about Beginner's Mind because you asked about it. So um, this is a really brilliant tool for when we get into a rut with some of our what we term heart sink patients, but also with people that we regularly um interact with who our expectations become very rigid of them because we have lots of experience of them and it affects how we communicate with them. Uh, and so the benefits of beginner's mind it gives us the joy of experiencing every positive situation as if we're seeing it for the first time. So that that gives us a good boost of positive body chemicals. It enhances well-being it allows us to come at every situation from a completely fresh perspective with no limiting beliefs or judgments and that way our decisions aren't contaminated by past experience uh, and others are free to be themselves without having our expectations placed upon them so we're not imagining the worst and expecting the worst. and again that that gives us um the opportunity to learn from the current experience instead of expecting something and, and sort of catastrophizing about what's going to happen and it keeps us present so it allows us to live in the present moment avoiding the, the fight-flight response and the negative chemicals that that um that invokes so the way to practice it is to cultivate the habit of reassessing and reframing boundaries so if somebody um has upset you or there has been an issue in in the past with somebody and it has been repetitive then you take that situation and you decide how your boundaries will be affected because of it. So, for example, if you've had an argument with somebody or got into a really heavy argument with somebody, you will say after that experience, next time I see that person, these things won't be on the agenda for discussion. I'll keep it light. And you you set your boundaries at the time so that the next time you see that person, that that those boundaries are in place. So you're not going to expect anything different from them, but but you're basically acting only on current information, how they are at the time, because you boundaries. And and in all situations
1: that leads to different interactions, it changes things. And people are different with us then as well. I do remember once I'd seen a patient, I thought very pleasant patient and wife was worried about him, problems with urine infections, <clears throat> was waiting to see a consultant had another one, we chased some things up and, you know, they left happy, I left happy. Then I went to coffee and one of the people I was working with said, oh my goodness, you're seeing so-and-so this morning. Oh, such a nightmare. Honestly, dread seeing them every time. She was obviously really triggered by it. I'd just seen him. And I said, oh, yeah. i just seen him and it was fine. And I was so grateful yeah. I'd seen him before I'd been to coffee because if I'd gone to, been to coffee and, you know, and I think... You know, this this poor doctor had just been so ground down with the stuff that had gone on, and there's stuff in the past, and maybe there'd have been a complaint. I I don't actually know what had gone on in the past, but I was so grateful I didn't carry that baggage towards the consultation, and I'm sure it's much better because of that. Yeah, but absolutely, how do you avoid that? Because if that had been me, you know, we all we all have those people that your heart it genuinely sinks to the to your boots. You oh God, I got that that pe- that person's coming in. I guess a lot of it's because you can't help them and you, you're feeling bad and you can't people please and all that sort of exactly. stuff. Exactly.
0: So. Exactly. So it's about recognising what it is that it's triggering within yourself. Yeah. Mm. So I can't fix this person. Mm. Therefore, does that mean I'm not a very good doctor? And actually letting go of that, recognising that fixing people isn't what we should be doing and actually just empowering people, giving them our knowledge and Helping them make sensible decisions, yeah, is is actually what our role should be. And if you stop trying to fix somebody, then actually they stop bothering you, and all you have to do is listen, yeah. And a lot of what they talk about will be negative, won't it? But actually, all you have to do is listen, and 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 that's what Chris is talking about with expectations, isn't it? And actually, what I found with a lot of my patients that I would have or did consider difficult is either we have better conversations when they come in. And, and then they just go. I don't offer anything else. I just listen, and then they say, "Oh right, okay, then, doctor, thank you," and then go. Or they start to go and see other people. But the trick, the tricky thing with that is that you that you've then got to be careful that you're not kind of having them accumulate all with other doctors. So so everybody needs to be doing the same kind of thing, don't they? And when a patient is in that the right part of the cycle of change, that's the time, isn't it? To to get in and go, well actually, were you aware that this might be useful? This is something that you could think about. So actually a really good language tool in a conversation with a patient that you find difficult is to try and not use the word I and just try and keep it all about you so that the so that the whole attention is focused on them and and they then start to get the message that actually it's about things that they need to do as opposed to coming and, and, and asking you to take responsibility for their health and their health decisions. I think it takes a long time to get there, but you no, know, recognizing that it's an issue is probably the main thing, really. I think it's useful to ask people what they need from you
2: as well. Okay. You know, something brought them into surgery that day, particularly. You know, there might be somebody who, who, who does suffer with the negative thinking, as you say, Rachel. The story that they're telling themselves is, "I'm in pain. I've got this." You know, and and actually, something brought them in. So if you can narrow down what, what it is they need, it, again, it might be something that you haven't you haven't thought, you know, and it might
1: just be that they
0: need you to listen.
1: Yeah. It's a very coaching-orientated technique, isn't it? And it is I remember yeah. going on a health behaviour coaching course, which was my first introduction to coaching, and I was just blown away. I was like, wow, it was the first time anyone had taught me to consult in any sort of a different way. And it was it was wonderful because – You know, it was, okay, I've got some ideas, but what would you, you know, what would you like, what do you need and just listening and do a lot of work with leaders in healthcare. And I think they feel a lot about their teams in the same way as, as, as we do feel about heart sync patients, you know, some of some team members are just really difficult and you end up dreading that one-to-one interaction with them or that appraisal or that, oh no, they're going to just moan or whatever. And all this is, I think, useful for that as well, because you then flip to the coaching approach. Okay, what do you need from this conversation with me? What would be the most useful thing? What do you think you could do about it? Yeah, so focusing on you, you, you. So I think it works not just with patients, but with heart sync.
0: Everybody in your life,
1: really. Yeah. We're
2: all like family. Know, some people are really difficult, but it is our perception of them as difficult. We perceive them as difficult, and that's a, that's a me thing. If I find somebody difficult, that's because they're cooking something that's my stuff. And I need to find the tools, make conversation with that person go more easily so that I don't, I'm not affected by it. I don't go away feeling drained and that that person's giving me a real difficult interaction. It really is about sourcing the right tools and the right ways to speak to people and also doing the inner work that
1: makes me not perceive people. I think there's um, that idea of coming to. Th- things with a beginner's mind is great. I, remember I was out with some friends the other week and there's a one person I find particularly difficult just because of a few things that have happened in the past. And I'm always quite guarded because I don't want to, you know, I don't want the conversation to go south or, or, or stuff. Mm-hmm. And if I just came to it as a beginner's mind going, yeah, okay, let's just, you know, it's no assumptions, no, no sort of triggers, but also knowing that probably let's not go down that route of conversation. (laughs) Let's be a bit wise about this. Um, It would just be be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Because you don't want to get your fingers
2: burnt again. So when you got your fingers burnt the first time, you would readjust your boundaries and say, that's off the, you know, so if you feel the conversation going down that route, that's a boundary. We're not going there, I'll change the subject. But you've taken all of the thinking and the emotional angst out of the interaction because you've already decided what you will not um, talk about or you know or to keep the conversation light or whatever those boundaries are and then you're free to go and actually
1: have a let her pleasantly or him pleasantly surprise you and have a nice time. So we're nearly out of time but I'd just like to get onto some really practical application of this because you know we've had some really interesting stuff about identifying this sort of sh- your shadow um, thinking about beginner's mind being able to Respond out of compassion rather than your empathy zone. And I'm just thinking, you know, and you've talked about inner work quite a lot. How does one go about doing that? (laughs) It's very well knowing all this stuff, and it sounds brilliant, and I'm fully on board with it. But like, how?
0: It's an ongoing. It is an ongoing thing, really. It's something that we all need to do every day, and it's about being conscious. Yeah. So make everything that you think and say. And do and feel conscious because then you can choose whether you want to let something run, an old pattern of behaviour. If it's appropriate, that's fine. But if it's not, then you have the opportunity to choose a different way. And it really is all about choice. And we have got a website, it's free. So www.resilientpractice.co.uk. And we post a blog every week on there. And there's usually a tool attached to it. that people can have a go at there are a list of um, there's a there's a toolkit on there that people can have a look at so it's a host of different kind of things that people can try people need to go out and explore and find the things that work for them the one
2: takeaway thing I would say from today people listening to the podcast is go away and observe your own responses mm. and behaviors if you do nothing but observe this is what I say to a lot of my patients who are stuck you know what if you just for say, three or four weeks, just observe how you feel and how you respond in all situations. You'll affect change without actually having to do anything else. That would be the takeaway thing. Start by observing your own responses and your own emotions and your
1: own strat for gaining what you need. It's a bit like observing particles in the Hadron Collider. You know, the act of observation changes, changes yeah. things. Yeah. And if you're observing, do you recommend that people journal and write them down or...? Mm. Have- yes very much so
0: journaling is amazing so you can process something that's happened you can unpack your day a specific type of journal a thought diary is what people use in cognitive behavioral therapy if you want to actually start to reframe thoughts that you're having so yeah absolutely journaling is a brilliant thing but not everybody likes to write things down so you know be don't be constrained by that you can record it on your phone yeah right just speak and tell yourself some notes some people can need to dance it out, you know. So <laughs> there are lots of different ways of processing and expressing yourself. And yeah, absolutely, find what works for you that's, and what resonates with you. And then do it. That's the other thing. Because we get really lethargic, don't we? And we stop doing the things that we know are good for us. So it is about making them become habits. And that's about doing this with them over and over and over again until they become a habit.
1: So in a second, I'm going to ask you for your top three Top three tips, maybe top three each because you guys have got 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 so much. <laughs> but if people want more, you've mentioned the website, and I understand you guys have written a book as well.:
2: Yep, it's called "How to Rise: A Complete Resilience Manual." It's published by uh, Sheldon Press, which is the imprint of Hachette books, and you can buy it at m- most of the uh, major booksellers. you can get it on Amazon, and it basically talks about everything that we've talked about today, so if you want to know more. Um, these concepts are in the book but also there's quite a lot more we go through um the concepts of self-awareness that you need to know about how how you became who you think you are and then some core skills which you need for resilience and then there's a a huge toolkit in the back which you can match your there's a resilience gap analysis tool which you can fill in and you can see where your needs are and you can map the tools to that but there's loads of ways to use it. you can just dive into the tools if you want to
1: It it sounds brilliant. And when you're saying, you know, observe yourself and, you know, use some of these tools, you can just choose whichever tool works for you, presumably. Yeah,
0: as well, for each of the tools, we've we've basically listed the things that it would be useful for. So so it's, it's, yeah, well mapped out.
1: Wow, what a great resource. So yeah, we'll put all the links to those in the show notes. But now top three tips. Let's start with you, Chrissy. then, Karen. Uh, Observe yourself completely for a few weeks.
2: That's tip number one. Tip number 2 do uh, a complaint fast. Ooh. So this is an experience <laughs> that I had and I could not believe the results. So basically I decided for one week to completely desist from complaining because I was affirming how tired I was, that I was in pain, that people were being annoying and my the people in my life were absolutely delighted. And I know my mood increased, everything was better. And actually, I I, I stopped observing that I needed to complain because I went straight. I don't have to complain about that. And it was massively liberating. So that's a definitely one that I would, I would suggest. And the third one, I would say, come at everything from a fresh perspective. Let go of your expert. It's still there. All your knowledge is still there. All the stuff you've worked so hard for is still there. It won't go away. And look at everything with fresh eyes, but reset your boundaries.
1: Brilliant. Thank Brilliant. you. Karen, what about you?
0: OK, so I would say challenge cognitive illusions. So they are those distorted patterns of thinking that we engage in regularly. So um, assuming the worst, assuming that we know what other people are thinking, so mind reading, um, adding emotional weight to things that people have said and done when really there's not there. Um I, that's my first one, definitely. Uh, second one is practice gratitude. This is the quickest way to get a boost of kind of positive body chemistry. So we would say write down three things that you're grateful for, then write down three things that you learned that day. Yeah, so it's a step on from a gratitude journal because it's easy to be grateful for the good stuff. But actually, what we need to learn to do is live gratefully which is about being grateful for everything that's happened, even when it was a a rough day. And that's about the lessons that you learn. And we always learn, don't we? There's always something to learn. And then the third one, Chris is going to laugh at this one, is physical activity. (laughs) Because it's not, but actually it is really brilliant. If you can weave physical activity into your day, it just makes such a difference. So I definitely try for that.
1: Great advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was really interesting. We have to get you back another time because I'm sure there's so much more to talk about. So if people want to get hold of you through the website. Yeah, absolutely. So info at resilientpractice.co.uk. That's a direct
0: email. And we've had, we have had people email us all the time. We're happy to, you know, chat to people, have to share advice. Have a look at the website. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, have a look at the book.
1: Great. Thank you so much. So have a good rest of day. Bye bye. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.